Welcome to Dermalogs, a podcast made possible by a grant from AbbVie through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, welcome to Dermalogs, Season 4. For those of you who are new to this podcast, I'm a dermatologist who works in Halifax, full-time academic now at Dalhousie. As residents, you don't always get a chance to hear from dermatologists outside your centre, and this podcast is designed to change some of that. The goal of this series is to help you, the dermatology residents, get answers from experts across the country to some of your burning questions on key areas of our practice. This season, we're mixing it up a little with a series of cross-specialty conversations. And we're starting out with clinical immunologist and allergist and my friend, Dr. Lori Connors. Lori's a clinical immunologist and allergist, as well as an associate professor in the Department of Medicine at Dalhousie University. She splits her time between academic and community allergy practice. She's very involved in resident education at Dalhousie University, and she's also the outgoing CPD chair for the Canadian Society of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. Lori, welcome. Thanks for having me, Carrie. This is exciting. I've never done a podcast before. Oh my, this is your first podcast. Well, welcome, and I hope that the experience is good for you. So... I'm really glad that you're joining us and I'm really excited to be talking to different specialists about things that, you know, you wish that the dermatology residents knew. So think of this as your opportunity to talk to the dermatology residents of Canada and say, man, if you guys just knew this, it would be fantastic. I'm thinking there's three kind of big areas that it would be nice to chat about with you today. So chronic spontaneous urticaria, some type two inflammatory conditions, and then some of the, um, information or disinformation around food allergy and how it pertains to eczema. That sound that so that is a great topic list and basically the topic list that I would come up with as well. So sounds like a plan. Great minds think alike. So one of the things um, that I think is interesting about chronic spontaneous urticaria is it kind of is one of these conditions that we do tend to both manage regularly Mm -hmm. and sometimes in different ways. Now, I think this might be a great time to take one of the questions from the residents. You've reached the world headquarters of the Dermalogs podcast. Hey, Dermalogs, this is Layla Rigigi. I'm a resident at Dalhousie University. My question for Dr. Connors is, what's your general approach to chronic urticaria? Thank you so much. Um, So for us, I think a lot of the chronic hive consults come in with query cause, Um, Mm -hmm. patient having hives, what's the cause kind of thing would be the most common referral. So I think we spend a lot of time first exploring one, is it actually a hive? And I would say, you know, up to 50% of the time, a referral we get for hives is not actually hives, right? So it's sort of clarifying the, the lesion, is it actually in keeping with the hive? And then is it typical hives versus atypical? So if it's something that fixed, it's bruising, it's scarring, it's lasting, you know, for longer than 48, 72 hours at a time, then I would sort of have my vasculitic hat on and be sort of thinking about unusual presentations. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority of hive consults we get that our hives are going to be very classic chronic urticaria. Um, you know, the, the derm residents do tend to do a rotation with us, um, either in PGY1 or PGY2 here at Dell. And certainly, I think one of the things that they learn from me and my other colleagues in allergy is the history for chronic hives has to include lifestyle factors and mm-hmm. not just sort of um, the triggers that the patient is concerned about. Um, so once I've figured out that, yes, it's hives, the next thing that I'm doing is sort of trying to figure out, are there inducible triggers, yes or no? So asking about, you know, heat, cholinergic, vibratory, cold, aquagenic, dermatographia, that sort of thing, and going through all of the inducible triggers, Mm -hmm. we will always ask about NSAIDs. And I think, I think um, the majority of derms would do that as well. But you know, it is about a third of patients with chronic urticaria that will have worsening with NSAIDs. You always want to make sure that you've asked that. Um, And then I ask about things that may have been inciting events. So again, I'm not focused on allergy. And sort of the one thing that I would love for everyone to learn is that chronic urticaria is not allergy. Yes, Mm -hmm. it may be type two inflammation, but specific allergy it is not right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. So sort of thinking about it as autoimmune or, you know, a T2 um, condition, I think is a better way of framing it rather than thinking about it being from a specific trigger. But the inciting events I'm thinking about is more life stuff. So Mm -hmm. is this a patient who's had a medical illness that has had a viral infection? Uh, Are there stressors that are contributing? 
And I will say, I'm not sure about my Durham colleagues, but in the land of COVID-19, we saw like a very significant increase in chronic urticaria consults that really were just brains under stress dealing with a pandemic um, yeah. sort of thing. And then in terms of the sort of the second step in terms of investigations, I would say from an allergy perspective, we really try not to do too many investigations because there, you know, from an allergy perspective, they, we shouldn't be skin testing these right. patients. There's yeah. not a specific trigger. So yes, if they also have rhinitis, sure, we can skin test them for, you know, inhale and allergens if we're looking at rhinitis, right? Mm -hmm. But from a chronic urticaria standpoint, we should not be doing testing for food. I think that's line. totally reasonable. I want to loop back to a couple of the history pieces. And then I, I wanted to ask you about um, any blood work that you might do. But thinking <laughs> about that, that history piece, and I agree with you, we have definitely seen an explosion of uh, chronic urticaria in the context of, of COVID and vaccine and infection mm -hmm. and some people that are just like raging that you can't get under control, which is interesting. Um, mm -hmm. How much focus do you put on the time course, first of all? So, you know, if somebody's there and they're at three or four weeks, are you staunchly like, listen, it's got to be six weeks or do you kind of assume it's going down the chronic path at that point? So I'm going to be really real with wait times here in Nova Scotia. So the chance <laughs> of me getting to see a chronic urticaria patients before they hit six weeks is pretty low. But if it is four weeks and it has that chronicity in terms of the pattern, it's clearly, you know, there's no specific trigger, et cetera. It's most days of the week, et cetera. Then I basically would tell the patient, I think you're marching along to chronic urticaria officially by, you know, diagnostic criteria. I won't use that term until six weeks. Um, so within acute, I'll talk to them about the differential for acute urticaria, which does include things like allergic etiologies and medication allergy, that sort of thing. But I'll sort of say, I don't think it's going to be that. I think you're going to be chronic urticaria and I will manage it uh, okay. like it's chronic urticaria at that point. And that reminds me too, when did the uh, name change occur between, I, I feel like when we were residents, it was chronic idiopathic urticaria, mm -hmm. and now it's really changed as chronic spontaneous urticaria. So when did that, do you know? When that, when did that, um, that was with the, I want to say like 2018 guidelines, um, okay. I want to say, but I will say some of the um, private payers and some of the companies for um medications we use for chronic urticaria still use CIU um, and that actually or chronic idiopathic urticaria, which can be confusing for patients if they've mm -hmm. gone to see you and you're using chronic spontaneous urticaria, or if they, they, they then look and actually the treatment they're getting is for chronic idiopathic urticaria. Sometimes there could be, you know, some discrepancy there and patients get a bit uncomfortable with that. So I do often in my spiel to patients, I'll say, this is chronic hives. That's sort of the layman's terms that I will use. And I'll say the medical term for this is chronic spontaneous urticaria. And then I'll add with or without angioedema okay. um, or chronic urticaria with inducible triggers if it is more of a physical urticaria presentation. But I do always tell patients the other term for this is chronic idiopathic urticaria and idiopathic in medicine means when we don't know sort of okay. what the cause is and explain it that way. Okay. So thinking about that, especially in the context of angioedema, um, in a general patient then that has what seems to be relatively uncomplicated chronic spontaneous urticaria, do you do any blood work investigations? And if so, what do you do? In general, I take sort of a choosing wisely approach to investigations for chronic urticaria. Um, and I go by the World Allergy Organization sort of guidelines uh, for and specifically in a North America type population. So I really do limited blood work. So a CBC, a CRP and a TSH. Okay. Um, and that's about it. Now, I will point out that if you look at the WAO, it does have some other stuff in there too, such as liver enzymes, but that's really because of sort of developing countries and parasitic infections as a cause for chronic urticaria in those areas of the world. So not a, not a common cause here in Canada. Right. Okay. <laughs> uh, also, though, thinking about that patient that might present with urticaria plus angioedema, um, let's actually take another question from one of the residents right now. Hi Dermalogs, this is Mike McGilvery, a fifth year resident in dermatology at Dalhousie University. My question for Dr. Connors is, what is your usual approach to workup of angioedema? For example, how far do you go down the blood work rabbit hole for C1Q deficiency, etc, etc? Thank you. 
So, I mean, in all honesty, if they have urticaria with their angioedema, I'm not doing anything different. Okay. So I still would just do the routine labs. It's for those patients that present with angioedema only, ah. um, of which the vast majority of them are still going to be idiopathic angioedema, which is essentially the same disease as mm -hmm. CSU. For those patients that are presenting with isolated angioedema, I will do, you know, C4, C1 inhibitor, C1 inhibitor of functional assay. Um, I would only do a C1Q if I was concerned about acquired angioedema, which does tend to be either older population, patient with lupus, or other sort of lymphoproliferative disease. Okay. You mentioned earlier too that you do ask about NSAIDs. I remember vaguely, and now this might be showing my age, that there was a period of time whereby oral contraceptives were mm -hmm. part of a thought that you should have when it comes to CSU. Is that still on the docket or is that like debunked? I think for the most part, um, it is mostly debunked is, is sort of the summary statement that I would give. Occasionally, I will still get the odd patient that is convinced that, you know, going on OCP has been an issue. But what I will say, I think is more common that common than I initially thought when I started practice was academenial component um, okay. to the urticaria. So yes. I definitely have patients who have worsening urticaria sort of in the premenstrual and then during the first couple of days of menses. And I do think there's something significant going on with those patients. I, however, have found for some of those patients, it's actually NSAID use during that time period. So that's ah, always important to clarify, okay. uh, but certainly cadmineal component. And if you think also about the vast majority, if you think about the epidemiology of who gets chronic urticaria, mm -hmm. it's most common in women and it's most common in women sort of like in their forties, fifties, that sort of thing. So it does make you also wonder, is there something else at play there in terms of the patient population that tends to be affected by this disease most? Right. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay, I want to talk about treatment, but first, I do want to ask you a burning question that I personally have, which is, how would you recommend that I approach, or, <clears throat> which is, how would you recommend that I answer this, and or how do you answer this when you go through the whole history, and then the patient absolutely, a million percent, believes that it's related to some form of food that they are ingesting or they want to be tested for food allergy because they are convinced from some TikTok somewhere that this is related to food allergy. What's your, what do you tell them? What should I tell them? Help me. Uh, TikTok, always making your job harder, <laughs> right? Yeah. Have right, you seen seriously. the Benadryl challenge? That's a I conversation can't. for oh, another day. But... No, that would, oh no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't watch those videos. Anyhow. <laughs> so what I, my usual spiel will be sort of that bit of that chronic urticaria talk that I sort of mentioned mm -hmm. in terms of talking about that this is more of an autoimmune or sort of an immune mediated internal process rather than something external. And I'll, I'll actually go like, point internally, I'll yes. point externally as I'm saying it. And I will say, so that means it's not something you're touching. It's not the home that you live in. It's not something that you're eating. It's not a medication that you're taking. Okay. Um, and if that doesn't sort of sit, then I will sort of do just a, my general explanation about food allergy. So I'll say food allergy is a very specific diagnosis. It's when you eat a food and then very quickly after have a worrisome, life-threatening allergic reaction. And okay. by eat a food and having a reaction, I mean like 30 to 60 minutes, right? Okay. Almost all food allergy happens like that. And then I'll sort of take a bit of their history they've given me already, such as, remember when you told me that you usually wake up with hives in the morning? and you haven't eaten for eight to 10 hours beforehand, oh, good tip. I can say, you know, therefore this is happening. It's your body that's doing it. It's not the food you're putting in your body. That's an awesome tip. I, what I sometimes say, and so you may, this may make you cringe, but I will say things like, you know, food allergy tends to be like you eat an egg and then your lips fall up, you can't breathe and you wheeze. And that's completely different than what's happening in your case. These are hives that aren't related to a specific trigger like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so I'm not cringing. That's not bad. Fantastic. Oh, pat on the back for me. I've learned from you and uh, and Gina LaQuesta well. So what I want to talk about now is treatment. So you know these patients come in. You've you've figured them out. You've ruled out the weird stuff. How do you? What's your general treatment ladder when it comes to an average patient with uh, CSU? 
So it depends on severity of the urticaria. And by severity, I mean sort of the number of lesions that I can see when they come in to see me, but also the impact on quality of life. And I mm -hmm. think actually the impact on quality of life is the most important thing for me when I'm deciding treatment options. Mm -hmm. So if so there are some patients who can literally have 100 hives a day and they're not bothered. Right. And then there are also some patients that can have 10 hives a day and they cannot function, right? right. So there, there's very... <laughs> differing responses to having chronic urticaria. So if someone, you know, has a poor quality of life related to their chronic urticaria, my first step is going to be high dose antihistamines. Mm -hmm. And I will say, you know, the referrals coming in, I do say, see in the last couple of years that, you know, we are seeing from our family medicine colleagues that people are getting put on antihistamines more consistently than yes. in the past, but maybe yep. not quite at the doses that we would use in allergy and derm is what I would mm -hmm. say. So, mm -hmm. you know, I really am going to that four times the over-the-counter dose of the antihistamine um, okay. from the get-go often when they're seeing me because they're bad enough to need to see a specialist uh, for their chronic urticaria. Yeah, I would agree. I think that uh, certainly we have seen a lot more people on, say, cetirizine, even 20 milligrams a day, which is really a great mm -hmm. start, but just jacking that up a bit can be really helpful. I do still occasionally, I don't know if you do, do you ever get calls? I still get calls from pharmacies saying, you wrote by lasting, uh, you know, 40 milligrams BID, but that's like way higher than mm -hmm. the label dose. And I say, no, no, it's fine. Um, do you still get that <laughs> or have they yeah, stopped so, calling you? Well, well, I will say, so in, in our EMR, you know how you can have like favorited prescriptions, yes. all of our antihistamine prescriptions, they have a note that's like saved that say okay. aware of dosing. This is dose used in chronic urticaria, because Ooh. if you think about it, I see like six to eight patients a day with chronic urticaria probably. Correct. So this is- You don't want to write that. You don't want to get that many calls. That's another yes. hot tip. Hot tip number two. Use your EMR. Use your EMR. <laughs> or if you work at a hospital like me, you have to write it out. Um, sorry, a hospital with a system from 1972 like me, I should right. clarify. Right. Um, okay. So you put them on the antihistamine. Uh, oh, be actually, before we move along from antihistamine, there are still a fair number of colleagues um, that believe in the H2 blocker, you know, I add ranitidine BID. And my general understanding is that has gone out of favor uh, in the allergy world. And I'm occasionally told that I'm wrong, but I don't like to be wrong. Am I wrong? Um, I don't think you're wrong. I will say when I started practice, it was still, you know, heavy into the ranitidine 150 mm -hmm. BID kind of part of practice. And it wasn't until the newer guidelines came out that the H2 blockers sort of disappeared. If you think about it, there's only about um, sort of 15% of, of your skin that has H2 receptors. And there are some studies looking at the impact of adding in H2 blockers. And it basically shows there's no significant difference in puritis and therefore quality of life. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it is almost like a little bit of a, you can at least do that it, it's an easy and safe medication while you're going to your next step of therapy. So sometimes I think that's when people are using okay. it. Um, and I do have some patients who I sort of started practice and were on it at that point in time that still, you know, really strongly feel like it works. But in okay. general, I don't, I don't use them. Um, it wouldn't be a new start. Okay. Not for me. No. So you've got your patient, they're four times dosed antihistamine. They've mm -hmm. had modest improvement, but they're still struggling. What, where's mm -hmm. your go-to then? Do you go straight uh, to omalizumab or what do you? Straight, straight All to omalizumab. Right. Yes, for okay. sure. Definitely on the omalizumab train. I think when omalizumab uh, came to market and was approved for chronic urticaria, it was completely practice changing, right? Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. I felt like a lot of patients were often very frustrated and partially controlled or subtherapeutic response, et cetera. So to have that option of anti-IgE uh, with uh, good efficacy rates and good safety profile has been super helpful. So as per our guidelines, um, you know, it would be four times the over-the-counter antihistamine dose, then reassess in two to four weeks. And if no response, the next line would be omelizumab mm -hmm. versus the third line therapies would be things like the cyclosporin, um, mm -hmm. imuran, et cetera. And even leukotriene receptor antagonists are listed as third line. Really? I will admit sometimes I will use an LTRA as I'm waiting for, you know, the omelizumab okay. application to be processed. Uh, but yes, that's certainly what we would do. I want to, I just want to talk about one little brief thing with the antihistamines though if you yeah. could go back to antihistamines Please, yes, yes. Um, so I did ask my my uh, allergy colleagues in Atlantic because you know we're a small group we, you yeah. know we have a, a little whatsapp text so I, I let them know I was doing this podcast and the, the one thing that they wanted to make sure that I sort of passed on is that we do not use first generation antihistamines excellent point. stop 
Full you know, stop. it didn't even come into my brain, Lori, because I feel like you guys have hammered that into me. Like, do not mm-hmm. use first generate. Do not, you know, Benadryl is like your, is like our polysporin is yes. your Benadryl. Yes. yes and we exactly. just can't go down that route. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank but you. But then That's... I also, I just want to mention also hydroxyzine is also in that same group Good point. Actually, sorry. And I feel I like do, a lot of germs still do are like using that. that. We yeah, do like that as a nighttime sedating <laughs> any. Thank you. That's a great point. And I, I do tend to go with the newer, if the person has a, a drug plan, I tend to go with bilacine or rupatidine. If they mm-hmm. don't, or they're on Pharmacare, I'll still use cetirizine 20 milligram doses. And I, I don't think I've actually prescribed a sedating first generation antihistamine in a couple of years. So great. I'll just answer. pat myself on Love the back that. here. Love that. Yeah. Well, I can hear your voice in, in the back of my head um, yeah. telling me not to do it. So my pen can't, can't write it any longer. Just mm-hmm. kidding. Um, so, okay. So that's a good, that's a good uh, segue back to, well, no, it's not a segue at all. Actually, we're going to talk about omalizumab and in terms of starting a patient on it. So in dermatology, the residents will be used to starting biologics for psoriasis, et cetera, where they're going to do TB skin tests and they're going to do hepatitis screening. I don't have a tendency to do much uh, prior to starting omalizumab. Do you? No, because you don't need to. Because remember, it's not like a type one biologic, right? So you're only targeting IgE. That's all you're dialing down this biologic. So there's no need for investigations beforehand. Is there any benefit in checking an IgE level? Or do you feel that a person is more likely to um, benefit positively if their IgE level is elevated to begin with? Or does like basically everyone with chronic urticaria already have an elevated IgE level? Um, They don't all have IgE levels. Um, There are some small studies looking at response rate to omalizumab uh, and correlation with IgE level. Um, However, they are relatively small studies. So I would say our current practice um, is not to do an IgE level. But if you are someone who's going to consider doing that, you would basically do a baseline IgE level. And then when you're thinking about discontinuing or tapering omalizumab, you would do another IgE level to sort of see what has happened um, over time. That said, we know when you're on omalizumab, you're IgE, your total IgE actually goes up um, because the free IgE in the blood is actually higher because it's all bound by the omelizumab. Roger that. Mm -hmm. I feel like maybe when before dupilumab was available that there would be a period of time where if like a atopic dermatitis patient had like a super Mm -hmm. elevated IgE that those would be patients we might consider omelizumab, but I guess it's kind of a moot point now because it certainly wouldn't be early on in my... No, but I have to say, so it's omalizumab is not indicated for atopic derm, but I do have a handful of patients that, you know, were, are on omalizumab through, you know, compassionate access, et cetera, for their atopic derm before we had the land mm-hmm. of biologics and JAK inhibitors for atopic derm. And, and a few of them have done beautifully well. It's not consistent enough of response. And that, that often is actually because of how high the IgE is. Mm-hmm. So you can only mop up so much IgE with omalizumab before you get to the max dose, right? right. And atopic derms just make all kinds of IgE. Okay. That makes sense. Um, so for, for omalizumab, if you have a patient on it with their 300 milligrams, um, Q monthly, and again, you're getting sort of like a modest or moderate response, what's your go-to? Do you tend to, um, optimize your therapy? And if so, in which way, or do you add something else as an adjunct treatment? Um, I would tend to, change the dosing frequency of omalizumab or increase the dose of omalizumab. However, I will put the caveat there that I also will readdress the lifestyle factors as well to make sure there's nothing different. There's no new stressor. There's no new NSAID ingestion and just sort of go back through the history piece to make sure I'm not missing anything from that. But then we typically would dose it, you know, every three weeks or every two weeks, depending on uh, severity or where the response rate is. Okay. I think I have one person on say like 450 every two weeks, but I, I don't know if anything higher than that would pretend much benefit. Um, do you have anyone on even a higher dose than that? Or I don't. I feel like I have seen and heard of people having folks on like 450 Q2 or 600 uh, Q2, uh, mm-hmm. but I haven't gone beyond the 450 myself. Mm-hmm. Now you've mentioned a couple times that stress is certainly a trigger and, um, mm-hmm. and we see that, is there any role or do you ever wade into it for patients to talk about, or maybe not to talk about, but to like recommend some stress mitigation or to speak with their primary care provider about like, you know, treatments for anxiety or, you know, how do you, mm-hmm. 
do you add that as part of your practice? I definitely add that as part of my practice. And sometimes even at the first appointment, if I feel like there's decent rapport with the patient and there's sort of that buy-in that stress or and or anxiety may be contributing, it's very important in the PTSD patient population, however, because they're known to have more treatment resistant chronic urticaria, especially if the PTSD is not sort of fully dealt with. Okay. Um, and so definitely I think it's worthwhile encouraging them to be seeing psychology and be discussing with their family doctor and sort of having mental health assessments uh, for sure. I have been known to ask the patient to download Calm or Headspace on their phone while I'm actually there with them. And I also <laughs> talk about, you know, basic things like, you know, adequate sleep and exercise, fresh air, that kind of thing. So I definitely right. am a little bit, you know, focused on that lifestyle piece. And I sometimes okay. will say to patients, if if I know them well, and I'm sort of not getting that buy-in into the mental health aspect, I'll sort of say, I can throw lots of medication at this. And I've got lots of medications and I've got a bag of tricks in terms of things that I can do. But if if the source of this is fueled by stress and we don't sort of dial that down, we're just going to keep chucking medications um, mm-hmm. in the fire kind mm-hmm. of thing. That's a really good way to, to put it, actually. Um, for the patient, for the few patients that say you've optimized your omelizumab, you're on 450Q2, you're still really not getting where you wanted to go. You earlier mentioned a little bit about, you know, cyclosporin or other um, conventional mm-hmm. immunosuppressants. What would you, or what in your experience seems to be effective in those particular cases? I mean, that, those are the cases where as a dermatologist, I'm going, am I missing something? And that's usually where I ask you to see them mm-hmm. um, and say like, am I missing something? What's up? Um help. <laughs> and I, I think honestly, with that same patient population, when it's that really treatment resistant chronic urticaria, that we're doing the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. We're like, oh, did we miss an urticarial vasculitis? Maybe we should send them to derm, see if what their opinion is, that sort of thing. So I do think we end up sharing these sort of more challenging to manage patients. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely from, you know, a data perspective, I think there's more solid data for cyclosporin compared to some of the other immunosuppressive medications. That said, I feel like derms, you're super comfy with, you know, a lot of the immunosuppressive of medications. I'm an allergist mm-hmm. over here. And so we do tend to use like uh, Plaquenil more so as like an early start, even though the okay. efficacy is not great. And I think it's honestly because we're all just a little nervous about the cyclosporin. I also just want to mention from a pipeline perspective, I do think we will have other biologics, you know, coming to market. So, you know, we used Dupilumab for atopic dermatitis. It would be great to see a CSU indication for Dupilumab mm-hmm. um, as well. And there's some promising yeah. data for that. So I do think we're going to have more options down the road. You kind of jumped, that was going to be my next question, which is what, what are you excited about that might be coming mm-hmm. down the, the road? But you, you, you just stole my thunder there. So, um, yep. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So I think that's, you know, I, I feel like that's a pretty good review of, of chronic urticaria. If they're again, don't use Benadryl mm-hmm. or hydroxyzine or first generation antihistamines people. Um, do you think we missed anything or is there anything that, you know, you, you think I should have talked about? Did I say don't do food allergy testing? Yeah, I said that. Yeah. We're good. <laughs> you did. Okay. Okay. Uh, fantastic. Uh, let's, uh, let's, let's shift gears a little bit and talk more about that type two inflammatory condition. And so, you know, we kind of talked a little bit about it because it, I think things are often related to each other. And to your point, you know, in dermatology and allergy, we've had areas in, in our therapeutic options that have been, uh, or sorry, we've had areas in, in, Okay, I'm going to go back to that. In dermatology and allergy, we've had a lot of different conditions whereby there haven't really been a lot of options. And so we tend to kind of play around with like, would this work or would that work? And so there is certainly some crossover. Um, We've talked a little bit about atopic dermatitis. And I think that is another area that we do tend to share. Now, I do think that the practice with allergy immunology may differ across the country because I think we're very fortunate here in Atlantic that our colleagues in allergy immunology manage um, all type two inflammation. They manage atopic, you guys manage atopic dermatitis. So, you know, we don't get all of those patients. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily the case across the board or am I Yeah, wrong? I do. I do. No, I think there's definitely different practice patterns uh, depending on, on where you are. And I think they're also is probably different comfort level in terms of the severity of atopic derm in particular. So I Mm -hmm. think when it's, you know, terrible atopic derm, someone comes in erythrodermic, et cetera, that, you know, a lot of the allergy folks may be like, okay, 
phone phone my germ friend, <laughs> get them sorted out. Uh, right. And also there's things that that most allergists don't do. So for instance, phototherapy, that's not going to be in, in my particular bag of tricks I would be referring on for that. Right. Um, and the majority of us don't do patch testing, although in Ontario, there's a fair okay. number of allergists that do do patch testing as well, if that is uh, needed. So I think maybe we could just talk about the generic atopic derm patient that kind of rolls into mm -hmm. the office and, and maybe different ways that we would approach that patient. And so for me, you know, I tend to be like, okay, atopic dermatitis, I'm thinking about their comorbidities, but I don't get into it all that much. And I have a sense mm -hmm. that your comorbidity related questions are probably much more robust and targeted than mine are. What mm -hmm. do you ask the atopic derm patients just thinking about so, other type two inflammatory? So if I'm seeing an atopic derm patient, I'll do the usual sort of atopic uh, derm history. But then as an allergist, I feel like I need to assess everything in that potential atopic march, right? right? So um, also, you know, in allergy, we tend to talk about the united airway and that that it's all the same pathway in terms of T2 inflammation. So if you're atopic derm is a mess, then is that going to fuel the other atopic diseases do you have and, and vice versa? And mm -hmm. so for, I would be addressing rhinitis, I'd be asking about conjunctivitis, I'd be doing some screening questions uh, for asthma, I would even ask about, you know, food sticking to get at eosinophilic esophagitis, I would be screening for food allergy. Uh, but that none of that really has to take that long, right? So mm -hmm. if it's an atopic derm consult, you can ask the patient something like, do you get a stuffy nose? Do you have any history of hay fever? Mm -hmm. Done. You can ask, do you have a puffer? Have you ever been told you have asthma? Done. Check. Food allergy. Do you ever eat something and then within an hour have immediate symptoms to a food? And you could clarify what you mean by symptoms if right. you know it turns out to be an IBS type presentation. And EOE, you know, do you get food sticking? So you can go through them quite quickly. Um, and then I wouldn't expect my germ colleagues to then manage all those comorbidities. But if you identify that there's other T2 stuff on the go, then refer to your friendly allergist. for those. But I do think it's really important that we do that as dermatologists, especially now where you're starting to see different therapeutic options that are available and some that are going to mm -hmm. be more targeted um, towards like just specifically the skin or cutaneous manifestations and others that mm -hmm. are going to be better suited to cover all of the different um, atopic conditions that the patient may have. So I do think, mm -hmm. I really do think it's important that dermatologists figure out a way to ask those questions quickly. Like we do for psoriasis, you know, you can ask questions about psoriatic arthritis relatively quickly and no, I'm mm -hmm. not going to manage it. And I'm not going to really be the be all to end all the diagnosis, but I'm going to go, this one seems suspicious. I'm going to refer that on. Yeah. yeah um, exactly. and, and then, so in those, in those cases, in the right situation, you're going to do things like pulmonary function tests, or you're going to do, you know, whatever mm -hmm. else is, is necessary, but that would be appropriate for us to send on your way. Oh yeah, for sure. And we, and we typically would do skin testing as well, right? Uh, for, so the vast majority of our atopic derms are going to have, most of them have a hint of something else. So they typically would get inhalant skin testing. Um, well, I'm sure we'll get to this, but we typically would do food testing only if it was necessary. Right. Um, and that's an important distinction as well. Okay. And yes, I definitely want to talk about food um, in mm -hmm. a bit uh, as it pertains to eczema. And then also just, you know, to put it in the back of your mind to bring back up dairy um, and, and right. the, <laughs> the devil that dairy has become mm -hmm. again on TikTok. Um, so once you've seen that patient, I guess it's just interesting for us to hear, like, what would be your typical um, management ladder for a patient that had predominantly atopic dermatitis? Like what's the allergist perspective? I suspect it's very similar, but like, how do you kind of go down that route? I suspect it's similar, but I guess we're going to find out. So my typical <laughs> management uh, would be to sort of first talk about the education piece and sort mm -hmm. of, I always do like a little spiel about skin barrier function and how, you know, in atopic derm, you've got a genetic predisposition. I really talk a lot about how it's not all allergy with atopic right. derm because <laughs> I think really there's scaring like, away from that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And sort of talk about how there can be an allergic component, but for most individuals, the real problem is a skin barrier. I make a zipper with my fingers and like mm -hmm. literally talk about how your skin is a tight zipper if it's working properly, but yours with atopic derm is a leaky zipper. So there's always water coming out and the bad stuff getting in. So we need to help the zipper function. And I sort of use that as, as the intro I'm not sure if that's a silly analogy. But I like that one. I use, a, I use a brick wall and mortar, but I like your zipper. Oh, you and go. for those yeah. of you, because you can't visual. actually, you can't see Lori doing this. She is showing me 
the zipper technique. And I, I think it is, uh, it, it's quite demonstrative of what you're trying to show. I like and it. then I think like when we talk about skincare hygiene and talk about moisturizers, et cetera, the spiel that I really focus on is, okay, you're someone, because usually folks that I'm seeing for atopic derm have, again, some type of allergy comorbidity. And mm -hmm. I'll make a statement about, okay, so you know how you're be, you've been using product X, Y, Z, that's like an all natural, et cetera. Well, things that are all natural, they look like nature, i.e. they look like plants you're allergic to plants. So we don't really want you to be using all natural because it looks too natural to your body. So things that are designed for eczema, that are designed for sensitive skin are actually safer for you to use an atopic derm. That's a fantastic line. I've never used, I always say things like, yeah, you know, natural, that's great, but poison ivy is natural. It doesn't mean your skin likes it. So, um, but I like yours that's better and I think it kind of makes sense. Uh, so I like that. I'm going to take, I'm going to steal that from you. Um, so we do all that stuff too, of course. Yeah. Yep. Like, you know, uh, general emollient moisturizers using yep. uh, topical steroid or, or calcineurin inhibitors for, for mm -hmm. small flares. And then what's your, cause I think this is where things might diverge a little bit. Are you able to go straight from topicals to like a biologic? Yes. I, I will say yes, but so I, I can for biologic. Um, but I do think there still is for, you know, the newer Jack inhibitors, that there's the need to fail one systemic kind of okay. thing. So I think that is the big difference. So yes, we're doing mm -hmm. the topical corticosteroids and, you know, the protopics and eucrisas and doing all of those kind of trials. And then once we've done those, you know, I typically would move on. The one that allergists use most commonly would probably be dupilumab. And that's just because, you know, clinical mm -hmm. experience, that kind of thing. And, you know, in general, I haven't had to have patients fail a systemic. I will write a little appeal letter about how that's not necessary with atopic derm, et cetera. Um, but for the JAK inhibitors, I think also this is where you'll see that there may be a bit of reluctance on the part of allergy so far because the JAK inhibitors feels to us kind of like what you you are used to for your psoriasis, biologics, et cetera. Mm -hmm. We've never had to do TB skin tests before right. in our yeah. patients and sort of think about that. <laughs> so I think it's a bit of a barrier. Um, yeah. So that I think is something that, you know, we're trying to get more clinical experience with the, the JAK inhibitors as well. But depending on the province that you're in, um, some of the provincial formularies as they're considering medications will put things for systemics uh, or new medications for atopic topic derm, they'll put only prescribed by derm kind of thing. Right. Luckily, we've been able to change that in Nova Scotia. So it, it says allergist or derm, right. I think now um, with that. But, you know, obviously, if if we're being told by private payers that we're, we can't prescribe, it just gets very frustrating for us. And so I Absolutely. think there's, that's yeah. a barrier for us too. Well, and it's interesting you say that because yeah, that uh, the JAK inhibitors um, that are available, so abrocitinib and um, upadacitinib are currently sort of not they don't seem to be the worst thing that we prescribe to people so we're, we are right. used to it but it is certainly a jump up in but for us of, think about yeah. us who have all like the intel fives and the intel 413s etc you're it like feels super like safe super safe, super biologics safe. do you know what i mean from a safety profile absolutely we've had yeah. great safety profiles so it's just it's going to take a little bit of time and then the the bit i don't know if i was clear enough about is that for many allergists they don't do other systemics for right. Um, atopic derm. And I would say myself included, I rarely would do that. It would be biologics that I would be thinking. And about. I think that's where most things diverge because we, uh, at least historically have been forced to utilize one or two conventional, uh, systemics prior to starting dupilumab mm -hmm. even. And so depending on what province you're in, methotrexate and, or cyclosporin. Um, mm -hmm. and so that's certainly been a challenge, which is why, it can be very helpful in the people that you see and go, geez, this person's so bad that when we collaborate on the patient, you're able to access that dupilumab for them without having to go down the methotrexate route, which is typically what I would use. Um, I think it's an exciting time though. And, and, you know, maybe if we had this conversation again in a year from now or two years from now, I think it would be interesting to talk about which patient gets which uh, medication. So like who's a biologic start, who's a Jack start and, and et cetera. But I have a feeling, at least for me, that most patients will start with a biologic and transition to a JAK inhibitor if they either have a primary or secondary failure. I, I have mm -hmm. a sense that that's what allergists will probably do going that forward. That is exactly what's happening okay. in our practice, for sure. It tends to be the biologic failures that we're like, okay, now we really need to do the JAK inhibitor. Let's go. <laughs> now it's time. Yeah. Um, 
the other thing I wanted to ask about was was the concept that maybe something like trilokinumab maybe wouldn't be a good choice for someone that had a lot of comorbid other atopic diastasis, like so that people that had asthma or had really bad rhinitis, mm-hmm. like are you, I'm not really up on that data to be honest, but. Yeah, I think it's still, you know, an area of interest, I would say for us. The thing with us when we're picking a medication, what's always important to us is comorbidity. So an mm-hmm. allergy we're always reflecting on, is it purely AD or does this patient also have X, Y, or Z in terms of atopic diseases? So if I know there's a medication that's that's not indicated for any of the other T2 conditions and or might have a bit of data showing that you know, not beneficial for other T2 inflammatory processes, then obviously that's not going to be my first choice, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to pick the drug that's indicated for three of the conditions that I'm managing. And I'll, you know, try to get it covered for the one that's uh, easiest for coverage, which would be atopic derm with the particular biologic that I'm thinking about. (laughs) Yes. Um, And that's sort of how we would sort of tailor treatment. So I think that's true. If you go to sort of any talk on biologics where there's an allergist is is on the panel we're always mm-hmm. like comorbidities let's put our hand up for the comorbidities you know and we're really trying to tailor therapy based on that absolutely and i you know i think we i think we are used to that in some ways in dermatology because if you think about psoriasis as sort of that blueprint like we're always thinking about do they have psoriatic arthritis do they have mm-hmm. inflammatory bowel disease do they have multiple sclerosis because you're thinking about yeah. comorbidities that would preclude certain treatment options and then others that would be treated for multiple different um, type one <laughs> inflammatory mm-hmm. condition. So, yeah, uh, you know, I think, I think it's a really exciting time, but I think we can probably loop back in the future about more specifics, but I think it's great that we have options right now. And what mm-hmm. I want to do is be conscious of your time, but talk about two other things. Okay. One, um, there was an article that was relatively recent. It was in the journal of allergy and C- clinical immunology in 2022 it, mm-hmm. I'm going to butcher this name, I'm sure, but Dr. Yepes Nunez at, at L. And they basically did a, a study looking at allergy immunotherapy, um, allergen immunotherapy for patients with atopic dermatitis and did a, actually did a meta-analysis. And so I don't know if there's like a bullet point that you have about this, but this would always be a question from our perspective. Like, mm-hmm. do, you know, so we see the atopic dermatitis patients, we may consider patch testing, whatever. When it comes mm-hmm. to that, do we do scratch testing? Should they have immunotherapy? which of those patients should go to you? What do you, that was like a loaded question. I hope there was an actual question in there that you can discern. (coughs) Yeah. So I think there is, there's questions in there for sure. So I will say any atopic derm that comes to my clinic, even if it is pure atopic derm, I will be doing inhalant skin testing. And it's really, I'm looking for house dust mite allergy. In mm-hmm. all honesty, that's what I'm looking for with, mm-hmm. with my testing, because there is evidence that you get improvement in severity and in itch scores, that sort of thing with immunotherapy. And I just want to clarify too, that study looked at both types. So we now do subcutaneous immunotherapy, which is like the allergy shots you sort of right. know, but we also yeah. do sublingual immunotherapy as well, which is home-based therapy. Um, and there's evidence that both forms of host dust mite immunotherapy can be helpful in atopic derm. Okay. Um, it's a massive commitment though. So this is the thing when it comes to immunotherapy. So I, I would suggest, yes, if the patient is struggling with control, you don't have access, maybe you're not able to get access to systemics or to biologics, et cetera. It's definitely something to think about. Subcutaneous immunotherapy would be like a weekly injection for four or five months, and then a monthly injection typically for three to five years. So wow. it's a big commitment. That is a time commitment. Okay. Yes. And every time you get a shot, you know, there's a one in 10 chance of swelling. There's a one in a thousand chance of anaphylaxis, et cetera. So it's not without risk. Okay. Um, sublingual immunotherapy is a, a little bit easier. You do one dose in the allergy clinic with a 30 minute observation period, and then they do it at home every day. And if it helps, you stay on it for three years on a daily okay. basis. Um, that's, there's a lot of oral itching because we're laying dust mites under your tongue basically. Uh, but there's I much less in the way of that. Yeah, much less in the way of systemic reactions uh, with okay. sublingual immunotherapy. So I think they're all options um, in the right patient population. So I guess maybe it would be fair to say that it would be reasonable to consider a referral to allergy if you have a patient that has those comorbidities, or maybe in the patient that's sort of not responding, or 
like, cause sometimes I guess that people come back and they're maybe not fully responding. I'm kind of thinking what's going on. And then I'll ask them again about hay fever symptoms or, you know, and then I'll kind of think to myself, maybe there's another component. Maybe they need that scratch testing and I'll send it to you guys for that. That that's reasonable. Okay. Yeah. And I actually think there are some now studies sort of looking at that. Are, I haven't heard results of yet looking at the use of dupilumab and then immunotherapy okay, um, as well as sort of like dual therapy to see if there is a, a, a better treatment response that way. Oh, very cool. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now the last topic that I want to cover, which is a hot and loaded topic is mm-hmm. food. So, yep. and this is what I just want to hear it straight from the allergist mouth. Mm-hmm because this comes up predominantly in our pediatric patients. And so Mm -hmm. in kiddos, you know, parents will say, I'm worried about a food or like when Johnny eats and he's messy, he gets, you know, swelling on his face and it makes his eczema worse or somebody's friend, aunt, cousin, practitioner has indicated to them that they need to cut out wheat, dairy, et cetera. How do you talk about food allergy in patients with atopic dermatitis so that they understand mm-hmm. or so that I understand. <laughs> yeah, it, it is pretty challenging uh, for sure. First, I want to give a little disclaimer that I am an adult allergist. Um, so I don't see peds, but I, I know what, what we all say in our group, which includes right. both adults and, and peds allergists. So in general, you know, if you're seeing a pediatric patient where the patients, you know, the family is saying, you know, Johnny, to your example, has milk, and then the next day his eczema is worse, or maybe it's worse within hours, etc. That's possible, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, and so yes, you could potentially consider doing skin testing in that clinical scenario where there is sort of a more immediate uh, type reaction to the food. However, the concern is that you then remove the food from the diet. So what we sort of will talk about is, okay, so milk is worsening Johnny's eczema. Mm-hmm. We can manage that eczema, right? What happens if we cut milk out in a in a infant, in a toddler, where they're still deciding whether or not there's going to be food allergy, right? Mm-hmm. So what can happen, and there are some studies that support this, is that you eliminate the food and then you cause food allergy, right? right? Because you've had avoidance rather than maintaining tolerance. Right. So our advice always is, if it's eczema and the kid's not having anaphylaxis to milk, then keep the milk, treat the eczema. Mm-hmm. that's sort of the party line. Okay. Now, when it comes to adult patients, um, I sort of will say, you know, there are some kids whose eczema is worsened by food, but that's actually the minority. It's at most like 20 to 30% of kids that would have worsening eczema with, with certain foods. I'll say by the time you're an adult, all of that sort of washes out in the mix. And so food allergy, you know, is not an important component of uh, adult atopic dermatitis. Um, that said, if someone wants to super restrict their, adi- their diet in adulthood, it's probably slightly less risky. However, at the recent Canadian allergy meeting, there was a case report um, that sort of described a patient with significant atopic dermatitis that saw a practitioner who put them on an elimination diet and following the elimination diet when they went to do their reintroduction piece had anaphylaxis and that oh. was an adult patient. So, you know, in general, nice. um, we would say we can manage the skin. So keep the food in, we'll manage the skin. I don't know if that I think think that that does make sense. I mean, I think the part that gets confusing for for patients and and probably dermatologists or me, maybe just me, um, is that, you know, there is an increased risk of food allergy in patients that Mm -hmm. have ATP, but the food piece doesn't drive the eczema, or at least not in in adults for the most part, and that restricting Mm -hmm. food in kids can be problematic, as you just explained. So I I think it's Mm -hmm. a little bit of a confusing area, but I, you explained it very well. And I, I don't recommend food um, restrictions, obviously, and only in the instances where people say, you know, Johnny has eggs and his lips swell up, do I send Mm -hmm. to you guys to go, um, (laughs) first of all, don't eat eggs. (laughs) Yes, fair enough. I want to give the caveat about early introduction of foods too. Um, So early introduction is recommended for all highly allergenic foods, you know, by about six months. If the baby has moderately to severe atopic dermatitis, and, and that would be severe by moderate to severe by, you know, a clinician, mm-hmm. um, severity index, um, then they sh- should potentially be assessed before introducing foods. So, okay. you know, if you have a babe that's like covered head to toe in atopic derm, it's reasonable for them to have a conversation with allergy right. uh, before moving forward. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's uh, very clear. Thank you. Um, and then the final piece really is just that, you know, idea that dairy is pro-inflammatory and, 
<laughs> this comes up more in the context of things like hydradenitis or frativa and some follicular mm-hmm. occlusion conditions. And, and, uh, you know, there's maybe some variable evidence that like increased mm-hmm. consumption, but my understanding is that increased consumption that would require, or that would allow dairy to be pro-inflammatory would be like really significant amounts. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, my only thoughts are to like get a little twitchy, um, but I will admit. <laughs> so yes, I know there is some evidence there, but what I, what I want to say is an allergist is that even if there is a pro-inflammatory, it is not an IgE. So you, acne, rosacea, et cetera, doesn't need to be referred for food allergy assessment because we do right. get those sometimes like query milk allergy and it's like someone has milk and they feel their acne gets worse. And yes, okay. maybe there is a component to that. I know that there is literature there the evidence base is um, maybe not super strong, but there's a little bit of literature there, but it's not IgE. Um, and so I would say I'm, I'm going to stick to just my IgE stuff over here. Okay. Rather than, okay. Yeah. That, that you, you made, you made the same face as when people say maculopapular to me. Right. So I'm going to just... write my next 10 referrals to you. Maculopapular rash. <laughs> Don't That's do what it. I'm going to do just for you. Then I'm going to send back, please rule out food allergy in this uh, CSU patient. <laughs> Perfect. Sounds great. Okay, there. We're going to be <laughs> cursing each other for the next few months. Um, but before I close out, Lori, is there anything else that you think the dermatology residents of Canada really need to know about allergy that we haven't covered? Um, let's just say that we're a cool specialty. We're pretty small, but we can be helpful in all of the T2 conditions. So get to know your local allergist and, and sort of network because I think the opportunity for collaboration is huge. A million percent. I couldn't agree more. And for residents that don't have a program or for residency programs that don't include an allergy immunology rotation, if you're able, I really do encourage you to do one because I think you learn a lot um, on that rotation. And so that's my other plug. But listen, Lori, thank you so much for joining me on uh, episode one of season four of the podcast. It's been great having you. Season opener. I didn't know. Yeah, it's you are a special guest both of us coming at you from the east coast and again thank you for your time and your expertise i picked up a lot of pearls much appreciated all right bye bye so thank you so much to dr connors and thanks to all of you for listening if you enjoyed this please give us a five-star rating and a review on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you listen and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss further episodes If you want to hear more great CDA podcasts, you can check out JCMS author interviews with Dr. Kirk Barber in conversation with authors of his pick of articles in the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery. That's it for this episode of Dermalogs. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy.